0: This is Book Speaks and Beyond, where we will bring you provocative music and engaging interviews from music artists, authors, historians, and others barely acknowledged by the mainstream media. I'll be your host, Taj. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhard about her informative and enlightening book entitled Collective Courage a history of African-American cooperative economic thought and practice. Collective Courage chronicles African-American cooperative business ownership and its practice in the movements for black civil rights and economic equality. Within this, it sheds light on everyday people and some well-known activists who advocated and practiced cooperative economics, to name a few. W.E.D. Du Bois, A. Philip Randolph, Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Joe Baker, Marcus Scarvey, the Nation of Islam, and the Black Panther Party. African-Americans, as well as other people of color and low-income people, have benefited greatly from cooperative ownership and democratic economic participation throughout the nation's history. Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhard is Professor of Community Justice and Social Economic Development in the Department of Africana Studies at John Jay College, City University of New York. Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhard, welcome to Books, Beats, and Beyond. Thank you so much. This is such an eye-opening account about something that a lot of us really don't know much about. So I just want to understand what motivated you to take this on, and how did you come across most of this information for this book?
1: So I got interested in the subject of cooperative ownership and cooperative economic development because – I um, was becoming a community economist, meaning a political economist whose focus is on community-based economic development Mm -hmm. and community economic empowerment. And I was trying to understand what kind of economic development, economic ownership models there were that could actually put control of a local economy into the hands of regular people. And so that's how I stumbled on the co-op business model. I actually had sort of known about cooperatives. I'd been in some uh, – I actually had grown up in an intentional community that was the semi-cooperative. I had um, been a member of um, co-op food store, you know, food grocery co-ops and uh, things like that. But I hadn't really thought of the co-op business model in terms of small business ownership, worker co-ops. Uh, economic development in that sense. So once I realized the model could be used that way, and that was mostly from reading um, some Canadian studies, uh, reading up on community-based economic development in the U.S. and urban redevelopment, uh, I got really excited about the model, and I started learning everything I could about cooperative economics. I started going to co-op, cooperative economics conferences and co-op conferences and trying to learn everything I could. But one of the stumbling blocks, I was focused on urban, black urban redevelopment and, and black community economic development. And when I first, this would have been in the 90s, when I was first learning, finding out about co-ops, going to some of these co-op events and co-op conferences and things, most of the people I saw were not people of color and not black people, and most of the co-ops people were talking about were not black co-ops. There were a few exceptions, like if you went to something in the South, there was the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, which is an organization of predominantly black agricultural co-op members and owners, Um, so I did finally sort of get a little glimpse of some black people, but mostly, especially in the urban co-op movement, which is what I was interested in most, there was not Black faces or black people or black examples, and so that I'm a, you know I'm a scholar I'm a curious person. Yeah. Um, it didn't make any sense to me, especially the more I learned about the model. It made no sense that African Americans didn't have any relationship with co-ops, yeah. and so I started um, to ask around. And I luckily had um, a friend and a classmate in grad school who had done his dissertation on. Du Bois' economic theory of the group economy. And Du Bois had written about just the Kames kind of stuff I was saying, how important co-ops are as a strategy for how to do uh, group democratic ownership that can bring um, the whole group up as opposed to capitalist small business development which just allows the small business owner to make it up. Co-ops can do something more. So I started, he he told me all this stuff from Du Bois to read. So once I realized Du Bois had been arguing it, I thought, okay, let me look further from there. Du Bois had been the editor of the Crisis Magazine for the NAACP for about 30 years. Mm. So I said, okay, if Du Bois was such a big proponent of co-ops in theory, he must have had some articles about black co-ops in the Crisis Magazine. And lo and behold, he did. I found about at least seven good articles from 1918, uh, I guess, to 1935 or something, um, talking about existing black co-ops. And that sort of was able to – actually, I shouldn't say oh, I had a graduate assistant. I need to give credit where credit here. <laughs> due. I mean, I told him what to look for, but he actually did the legwork. Mm-hmm. Um and so that really got me, that made me realize there was a history of black-owned cooperatives. And so I just kept digging. But what digging meant, because there's very little chronicled about it, is so starting with Du Bois. Du Bois also wrote a, a monograph, an actual book on uh, black, what, uh, I always forget the name of it, Economic Cooperation Among Negro Americans. He wrote that in 1907. So I kind of based a lot of my research on that, but I was really more interested in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um so I started looking in the 20th century, but I end up I think part of half of the book maybe on um, the 19th century, but a lot of what I was focusing on was 20th century and I was more interested in urban than agricultural co-ops and more interested in business co-ops than like housing or credit unions, but I had a little bit, I have a little bit about all those aspects. And I couldn't tell the story without talking about the ad co-ops because that's a huge piece of it. Yeah. But yeah, I just kept digging. I read people's autobiographies. I looked in other black magazines, any reference at all to co-ops, co-op businesses, co-op activity, that kind of thing. And slowly I was able to piece things together.
0: Wow. what's well, amazing. From all of that, you have so many examples. It's just mind-boggling
1: well it just it just ballooned it's really um you know the sociologists have a term called the snowball effect
0: Mm.
1: right where you find one little snowflake yeah right right, and then you add to that snowflake and keep adding that's really what happened here you know i found small tidbits slowly i could build up from those i looked you know every time i found an article I, i looked and used everything they referenced Um, You know, every time I heard the name of someone, like once I heard that Ella Jo Baker had been involved, I actually went and looked in her papers and um, read all all the biographies that were done of her, you know, that kind of thing. And so, um, you know, somebody else heard I was doing a study and told me about the um, Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porter's connection to co-op. So then I read everything I could from that perspective. Um, You know, it just kept going like that.
2: Do remember, I am a true descendant of people who were stolen and traded for all the riches. But I can play the victim, I'm told, just to forget it. While they dwell on 9-11 and celebrate independence. But I'm supposed to clean the memory of all the lynching. Shit, I cringe at the thought of giving my daughter whippets. Plus, I see the name that owns my family every time I write a check. So how the fuck am I supposed to forget when we ain't safe in churches so even when we comply? The ones paid to protect us I'm making sure that we die. They say we kill ourselves, we still. Cheat every robber, some of y'all do the same. When you supposed to be on the job, and if you really care about the welfare of my people, you make sure that the schools for all children were equal. Fair competition, so they had to pick the game. Scared if we catch up, then we do they ass the same. No, they deserve it, but they ask, what would Jesus do? Bet my bottom dollar, he wouldn't be down with you. He was the wrong shade, you probably do him the same. Shoot him seven times while trying to give you his name, right in front of his kids. Body them with the crown. Crum- Labeled the threat when all he tried to do was get him home. All of saying in the future, minus a past it never exists. Y'all make sure your babies listen to this and wake up.
0: So, just to really break it down for us, what is a cooperative? <laughs>
1: Right, so a cooperative is an enterprise, basically a business, but an enterprise that is formed. The purpose of it is to solve an economic problem, (laughs) and in a minute I'll explain that a little bit further. (laughs) But its purpose is to solve an economic problem, and its methodology, its method or ownership structure is to do it by um, having collective owners who pool small amounts, of resources, particularly finance, but it can be other resources too, like uh, sweat equity and labor and that kind of thing. But you pool, um, you pool resources and use that pooled resources to leverage other resources to either create the product or create the service that your business was to develop. Mm-hmm. And so, what I mean by to serve a purpose of solving a need. Some of the easiest ones to think about are rural electricity. So, especially um, in capitalist societies, most energy corporations do not wire rural places because the population density is so, what's Mm. it called? Undense. The, um, right, the population is so spread out that you can't make a huge profit yeah, by wiring places that are so far away, right? So mm. rural areas don't get electrified by capitalist companies. Mm. But rural, rural places do eventually get electrified. In the United States, it was through a cooper- whole rural cooperative structure. Mm. And what happened was you get everybody – in a 25, 30, 200-mile range who needs electricity, Uh, economists, we call it the market failure, right? The market failed to provide electricity in those places because it wasn't profitable. And right now, right, we're in a system, a market system that operates on profits. The rural electrics said, okay, it's not about whether it's profitable or not. It's about the need. So you get together all the people who have the need. They all put in some equity. They use that equity to leverage a loan. They create a business plan for how to electrify everybody. Their pooled money, their leveraged money, their plan allows them to pay for the wiring and get everybody connected, but because they don't have a middleman, they don't have a board that's trying to make a profit off of it. They have a board made up of the same members who are just trying to make sure they all get electricity. Right Decisions get made differently, and they're able to use the money directly for what the need was, solve that problem, and then run the company democratically. All the members or all the people who get elected to the board basically have one vote. doesn't matter how much time, energy or money you put into the to the business. everybody gets one vote, and so that's the democratic part. Um, and uh the money is uh shared equally. Or actually, it's considered shared according to use. So the more you use the co-op, you actually uh, develop an account, a credit account. And then at the end of each year, the, the profits are divided fairly, but based on how much each person used the business. So So I don't know if that was clear enough. No, no,
0: it it really (laughs) Um, was. But, I mean,
1: the other thing that's really interesting, especially for this rural electric case, is the rural electric companies eventually become very profitable. So co-ops aren't necessarily not for profit. They're just – their main purpose is not to make a profit. Right. But to stay in business, you actually have to have some surplus. That's the word we use in the co-op world is surplus rather than profit. But you still have to have some surplus because you have to be able to put more money back into the business. You have to be able to sustain the business, that kind of thing. Yeah. But your main purpose isn't to just make huge profits and keep all your other costs low. Your main purpose is to address that need, that service, to create that thing, and to do it in this democratic, collective way.
0: Wow. You know what's something I, I think people might be probably ask me is, how, how is this kind of different? Than socialism, communism, in a sense,
1: so um they all have common elements, right, mm-hmm. which is people before profits valuing labor more than capital. Um, but technically, uh, if we start with communism, you know, according to the way Karl Marx talked about it, communism was supposed to be the ultimate form of the proletariat, meaning workers. Owning their own uh, facilities, businesses, and economic activities, and owning the state. So the state was supposed to be owned and controlled by the workers, Mm. and the state was supposed to own and control the factories and the industry and the economic activity because the state was controlled by the workers. So basically the workers were supposed to control everything, but they did it through the state by getting the political power to then have the economic power. Um Socialism was supposed to be on the road to that total right. worker ownership, and socialism was supposed to allow for small capitalist ownership so small um, small capitalist businesses, but anything that was large was owned by the state, and the state. Even though it wasn't totally controlled by the workers yet, it was supposed to be on the way to getting the workers to control everything, mm-hmm. but to have the natural monopolies owned by the state, mm-hmm. like the banks, the utilities, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Co ops are a little bit different because they don't really have that ideology of the workers owning the whole thing, you know, becoming political and owning the whole thing. But they also don't, they also have um, stronger mechanisms for local democratic control. What happened in some of the socialist and communist states, the ones that actually tried to practice communism, in my opinion, became too top-down, mm-hmm. right? In order to consolidate the political power, they kind of became dictatorships and very top-down with this is the only way to do this you can only do this do that do that whatever mm-hmm. and the workers end up not really being in control it's the political parties that were supposed to represent the workers mm-hmm. in a co-op there's much less I mean you can still have some co-ops that are very hierarchical um, but most of the co-ops there's more mechanisms about everybody participating in decision making. That's why that education piece is so important, so that everybody right. knows what's happening, understands, yeah. so that everybody can make decisions, can participate, can be involved, and then the um, equal equalizing the distribution of the surplus in a co-op business. Mm. Um, so the the mechanisms for cooperative ownership are much more um geared toward the grassroots that grassroots equity and equality, grassroots democratic participation, right? Because they take out the they take out the power of capital, right? In co ops it's really labor or the members who own the capital rather than the capital that rents the labor oh, okay. and the other models, mm-hmm. right? So, um Even in the way that communism has played out in the states that have become communist, they tended to still kind of rent labor, even though the ideology was that it was really labor who was in charge. But because labor kind of gave their power to these um, political parties, which then only represented them but didn't give them all the power. I don't know. I'm getting it's getting confusing now, but anyway,
0: no, no. Um,
1: labor kind of gives up some of its power in those co- the way that communism is yeah. played out and ends up being rented. Mm. And in co-ops, it's really the powers in the members. We don't even call it labor, but the members who then use capital to solve the problems that they came to gather to address.
0: It has. It right? seems like it has so a lot more checks and balances since everybody's getting educated. There's educate more checks it.
1: and balances. There's yeah. much less, you know, it's not about um, the profit motive. It's about the motive of making a better life and solving these economic problems, and then it's about this economic participation, making sure everybody has as much or can have as much equal participation as possible, mm-hmm. regardless of what economic, even education... St- status they have, right? So, um, and then the other thing that's interesting about co-ops is you actually, and we have it right here in the United States, co-ops can technically can coexist in capitalism.
0: Right, yeah.
1: I mean, you know, I'm not sure that co-ops can do the very best that they can be under capitalism, but they certainly can coexist with capitalism. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, you don't have to have the discussion about changing the whole system. To have a co-op, um, I have written in other places, not in, the, in this book that we're talking about, but I have written other places that I think the more you put together these co-op commonwealths, where you have more and more co-ops interrelating with each other, the more they're the less interested they are in capitalism, and so you can get rid of capitalism eventually. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it doesn't it doesn't require Getting rid of capital. It's not
0: the same purpose, co-ops. yeah. Right.
1: right. And you actually have a lot of conservative Republican type people who support co-ops because they see it as private enterprise. Actually, mm. Mm. it's just private enterprise that's group owned. Mm. Um, you know. So, and not everybody sees that potential of once you have people owning things together and making decisions together and getting some basis of wealth that then they can move you know, expand the model bigger and bigger and move it and expect it in more places. I mean, that's my understanding of how it works, but it doesn't, you know, sometimes it just gets contained in the small examples, especially if the other powerful forces keep it contained, which is kind of what's happening now. Mm -hmm. But the potential, I think, is um, for it to to grow as long as you keep the power of the smaller entities, right, so you have federations of co-ops and not just large, huge co-ops. I see. Mm-hmm. Right, because you've got to have federations of smaller co-ops in order to keep that close relation to grassroots participatory mm-hmm. justice.
0: Well, that's great. Um, that that really broke it down. That that has stopped people from asking me that. <laughs> 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 so I, I appreciate. I don't it. know. Some people <laughs> might
1: disagree with that enough, <laughs> but that's how I explain it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so how long have African Americans been? Participating in cooperative economics.
1: So uh, forever,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but but really, almost all groups in the world, right, mm-hmm. have started out with some kind of cooperative mode. The whole notion of the commons is really about cooper mm-hmm. economic cooperation. You know, I took the when I first started, I was really looking for official, officially incorporated cooperatives owned by African Americans. In the United States, and I stuck with that a little bit. But when I was reading Du Bois's work, he actually had a larger definition because um, co-op law didn't really come into being until around the 1860s or 70s, mm-hmm. and he went back further. So I went back further because there are lots of examples of economic cooperation. And then I tried to do a little bit of the connections with Africa, but that's really a whole other book I need to do or a whole other set of chapters I need to look at. Because if you read people like Chancellor Williams Mm -hmm. and other African scholars, most of early African civilizations were also based on cooperatives. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and when I look at pretty much the world cultures pretty much all cultures started out doing you know we're all in this together to survive right, right. right. Um, and then slowly these other systems took over where some people were allowed to amass lots more wealth and and handle everything and take charge of all the decision making and some people were left behind mm-hmm. but originally everybody kind of worked together, did things collectively. Um, So pretty much if you go back to early Native American societies, early African civilizations, early First Nations, anywhere, most of those groups, you know, practiced it um, and then forgot, right, or it was legislated out of business. So for African Americans, you know, we left, we often were ripped from societies that already practiced collectivism, um, and then we're forced into, you know, first as slaves, it, it was even worse than the capitalist system because we couldn't even own our own bodies, right. own, yeah. own any capital, um, and then thrown into the Jim Crow system where even though we now technically owned our bodies, we couldn't do very much with our bodies, right? Mm-hmm. It was very limited. But in those systems, even as enslaved peoples, we practiced a lot of what Du Bois called this economic cooperation. So it wasn't official co-op businesses. But it was these collective, we did collective farming on the kitchen farms on Sundays when we weren't slaving. We um, created what's called mutual aid societies, which were basically um, groups of people come together for a need, like how to bury your dead, Mm. how to take care of widows and orphans, how to handle sickness, put in a small amount of dues, pool that dues so then whoever needs it takes a pot of money or some section of the money to use it to pay to bury their dead or for hospitalization or sick care or something like that. So we had those early um, mutual aid societies. I think the first one that was recorded was like 1730 or something.
0: Wow. It just seemed.
1: So, yeah, I really talk about that we have this long tradition. Basically, yeah. I say we never had a tradition where we were without co-op.
0: Yeah, that's what I got from the book. Like It just seemed like a natural thing that was just. All of a sudden just disappeared for for some reason. Well, not it well, has you know, the other yeah. thing is it
1: never totally exactly. disappeared. But yeah. it's always been it's gone under the radar lots yeah. of times. Yeah. Right? So, you know, even I think that's the other thing. When I started talking to people of color, especially black people about co ops, the first thing they would say is, Oh no, we don't do that. Hippies do food co ops, but <laughs> so we don't do co ops, right? Yeah. Then the more I would talk and you know, the more examples I would give then by the end of this the, the talk people would come up to me, Oh, you know, my grandparents <laughs> were in this food co op and my aunt and uncle actually ran this collective farm with their neighbor you know, and then suddenly they, you know, once they actually could put articulate the 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 activities, they suddenly could rewrite the history. Right. But without the words, right, without the concepts, it was hard. But the other thing is I I do believe that um, as a people, we did kind of hide it because it was very difficult to operate the co-ops out in the open because one – we're in a capitalist society, so especially by the 50s when there's all this red-baiting, you don't want to talk about co-ops because people call you a communist or a socialist mm. and dismiss you, right? Yeah. Two, we do live in a capitalist society, and most of us are trying to get a piece of that capitalist pie, right? Yeah. So we're not that excited. Like, we sort of do co-ops out of necessity, but not really out of choice in that sense, right? Mm, true. So we're kind of – it's a, it's a stopgap. It's a step right, Mm -hmm. Um, in some ways, until we can become capitalists, right? We'll do this because we've got to survive kind of thing. So you don't really talk about it that much because it wasn't technically the preferred mode, right? Right, right. You know, and then the final thing is, which is partly why the title of my book is Collective Courage, it was actually quite dangerous to practice cooperative economics, especially in very racist places. Yes, the South, but there were even some places in the North where um, white capitalists and white supremacists used violence, terrorism, economic, uh, financial sabotage, anything they could do to stop these black co-ops from surviving.
0: Right, because it takes often away from them. Mm.
1: It takes away, right, because, you know, often they had a monopoly on serving you, whether it was a food store or a farm store or the health or whatever, and if you're, you are getting a whole group of blacks to opt out of that white economic system mm-hmm. um they're not happy with that right and for you to then show that you can thrive strive and thrive without them in a different way they didn't want that example yeah so they were very um you know not all the co-ops got sabotaged but so many of them i mean Luckily, a lot of them survived the sabotage, but then many of them didn't survive the sabotage. And so then you didn't talk about it because it was a failure and it was dangerous, Mm -hmm. right? The people that you might have known who were involved in it are all underground. Some of them got killed. So you're definitely not going to really start encouraging your children to do that. Right. Right?
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) So then it gets lost. The history gets lost for that reason also. Yeah.
0: We're going to stop right here and take a quick break and we'll be right back.
2: so We daily, Don't care about a nigga, outcome. They really only focus on the income. Black person, white, who Black versus white, who raced? Everything looking outrageous. Yeah, this shit feels so outdated. outdated. But we still deal with it on a daily, I swear. Mm. I wonder when it's really gonna change. Man, I wonder when we getting out the game. Shame. A player got to scrape a dollar together. The bill still do. Make 10, they gonna want 15. I the check. Ain't no help in the Rolodex. So you do a little wrong just to a Sacrifice your freedom for the Louis V's, YSL's, and every letter in the alphabet. Put them laws on the low, chasing, life ain't scar-face to move it. face the movie, face they they waiting on you to be stupid, basic, you're just another number in the city. Case, propaganda, the promotion of the notion, the only way you get out the hood is with the stove and you're living fast and dying young is where you're going, don't fall victim to the trap door that ain't shown. It's bigger than the block that you stand for. What a shot that you got at the band. Oh, could a loud pull up with the hand Ain't nothing cool in the street filled with candles. Another shooting on the front, pages. another crime family over they bait. Another murder played out on new stations. What a way we live in a so hot race. you need the cook come kids' songs. America looking like a sitcom. They don't care about a nigga outcome. I really only focus on the income. Black versus white who race. A- everything looking outrage. Yeah, shit feels so outdated. But we still deal with it.
0: All- there is an interesting flow with the book it seemed like there was a few time periods where cooperative economics was used the most yes if you can break down that a little bit yeah
1: so that one was interesting to me i didn't actually realize it till after when i was trying to sort of sum up the book and figure out what i had really you know what i had found overall so um, and then I did a timeline at the end of the uh, chronology, at the end of the book, where I actually listed every possible co-op I could have found yeah. that was black and put the dates that I had. Um,
0: that was interesting. And once
1: I looked at that, yeah, I was like, okay, so the 1880s, the 1930s and 40s, and the 1960s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And so then what's, why those three periods yeah. and you know, sort of what's common about them and what might be different about those periods? So, one of the main commonalities of the three sets of periods were strong black organizations. All three of those time periods had black organizations that actually um, spoke out about cooperative economics being a good strategy and or uh, helped to develop co-ops and developed co-op education programs so having a black organization that was deliberately promoting co-ops was very important. And some of the other periods didn't have that. So the 1880s had it with the unions, and in a minute I'll talk about this wonderful conflagration of the unions and uh, co-op development, et cetera. The 30s and 40s also had some strong black organizations like the Young Negroes Cooperative League and the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters that were pushing co-op education and co-op development. The 60s and 70s with the Black Power Movement, um, SNCC, the Black Panthers um, were all promoting co-op ownership, co-op development. Um, So strong organizations was the first really important thing. The second would be... um, economics. So particularly the 1880s and the 1930s and 40s, especially the 30s, right, with the Great yeah, Depression. Great depression. Mm-hmm. The um, economy was so horrible, blacks were really suffering. And there was nothing, right? So many black communities had lost all their jobs, lost stores, lost banks, lost everything. No, There were no resources coming in. And so uh, the natural thing to do is come together and figure out what can we do together, Um, And so that was the natural thing to do, and then combined with having these black organizations that are then actually promoting it and helping people to educate themselves about it and stuff makes a big difference. Even the 40s, when things were getting better, are still a height because also by then the New Deal has come in, and there are aspects of the New Deal that's actually promoting co-op development also. Mm. So the federal government had two or three government agencies that are promoting co-ops by the 40s, by the New Deal probably actually late 30s um and that's helping blacks i mean it's helping whites more than blacks but it's still helping blacks Mm -hmm. um and so that's in the 1880s it's right after it's right after the end of reconstruction and i don't know how much you or your listeners know about history yeah we're actually kind of in a similar spot right now in 2017 um So the the Reconstruction is the period after the Civil War where the Union is coming back together, but it's also the period of um, emancipation, the three emancipatory uh, amendments to the U.S. Constitution, constituting um, Mm -hmm. uh, the end of slavery, except in prison, of course, (laughs) Um, the right bestowing citizen rights on anyone born in the U.S., and voting rights for men, universal voting rights for men rather than based on property or race. So those three things have passed. There's a bunch of other civil rights laws that get passed. Blacks get to vote, et cetera. So things were great. But by 1877, um, the regressive forces have taken back the Congress and the presidency and removed <laughs> most of the federal supports. The Ku Klux Klan is on the rise. Yeah. Um, white supremacist violence. Um, the economy is tanking. Um, Sounds familiar. So... Yes, that's what I said. It's a very (laughs) familiar period, but it's actually a period of strong African-American co-op development. Again, Mm. because one, there's there's not many other options, but two, there's also a growing counter movement called the populist movement and the labor movement. The populist movement and the labor movement and the co-op movement are all growing together. They're all sort of babies at this period. Yeah. But, like, the, the the labor unions are also practicing cooperative ownership, especially worker co-op ownership, right? The progressive movement is supporting labor and co-ops. Um, they're even supporting women's rights. And the most progressive labor unions are also promoting integration, and some of them are actually integrated. Um, which makes it very dangerous. Yeah. Um, so it's actually an incredible period where sort of all the forces are moving to the same solutions, mm-hmm. but it's also this huge period of repression. So all every time you get a very progressive labor union doing co-op development and supporting black rights and integration, you get the Ku Klux Klan and um, the conservative Democrats. The Democratic Party in that period was the real bad guys then. Um, they cracked down, right? There's lots of lynching, supremacist violence. There's lots of um, dismantling and attacking of black co-ops, but there's also lots of co-op activity. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, by the early 1900s, all that, the labor unions have gone underground. They can't really talk about co-ops anymore. Um, everybody's been segregated. There's the new Jim Crow laws in the south and de facto segregation in the north. Um, But for that, you know, it was about a 10-year period from the end of – from the early 1880s to the end of the 1880s. Yeah,
0: I noticed something. That you
1: really had this progressive stuff going on, and co-ops are right there in the middle of the strategy.
0: Yeah, I noticed something interesting. Besides just, like, economic stability with co-ops, there was Mm -hmm. this incredible – uh, relationship between activism and cooperative economics. Right. Yeah.
1: Yes. And so that's sort of, that's another piece and that is easy to see in the 60s and 70s also, but this, the black liberation movements, the black civil rights liberation uh, the groups that are saying it's not just good enough for us to survive, we have to thrive and have our own sort of power, independence, and wealth. Those groups also see co-ops as a solution because once you get past co-ops just as a survival mode, you can actually see how co-ops can help stabilize communities, create growth, spin off other co-ops, spin off other um, support activities. Because remember, when you've got an economic activity that means including everybody, giving people decision-making, Uh, having open book management, meaning people can understand the finances, right? People are getting better educated on the job, so then they also are going to spill over into the rest of their lives. They want more transparency, more participation and other things. There's also more places to connect, right? You can connect with other suppliers, and those suppliers can now be co-ops. You can do your financing in a credit union, which is a financial co-op you can, uh, right, so there's, yeah. the more you you have the co-op activity, the more you have co-op activity, <laughs>
0: yeah. and
1: so um, a lot of the liberation groups also start talking about co-ops as a way to consolidate and develop black wealth, right, so, mm-hmm. so first consolidate to hold in whatever little bit we have, but then use that to develop ourselves as a community, which would bring us all more wealth and help the community more so by the time you get to the black panthers even though again they're another group that's most known for you know self-defense by any means necessary most of their programs their real activities were these co-op collective community development
0: that was amazing Yeah. yeah right
1: so they're doing not just the free breakfast for kids and talking to kids about black history but they're also doing they had collective um newspapers which is how they raised money to pay for themselves they lived in collective housing they had um shoe they were making shoes in a collective factory they're making bread in collective bakeries um because their real notion was this shoring up the black community so the black community could do for itself and be for itself you know the publicity they got was more about um guns and and self-defense but that's not really how they were supporting themselves and it wasn't really it's not really when you read what their mission and objectives were it was more about this collective development stuff
0: one thing i was reading in the book is that education is a big part of cooperative economics um talk about that
1: okay so first of all remember back to this Collective decision-making, democratic participation, you cannot run an enterprise where multiple people have input into the decisions without making sure that all the people making the decisions are educated about the decisions, about how the company works, right, right? Mm -hmm. about, right. So co-ops have to practice education in terms of every time you have a new member, every time. You have uh, what's called an annual meeting. uh, To be a co-op, you're required once a year at least to bring all your members together and have them talk about and vote on major policies, right? You really can't do that. And then the board is made up of representatives of the membership, so the board needs special training about how to govern, right? So you can't really do the things that a co-op is mandated to do as a co-op if you don't educate your members, And so education internally is really important, but also there's other pieces of education that are just as important, so you end up with this whole sort of multifaceted system of education. You also need to educate any of your customers and the community because you want them to understand who you are, why you're a co-op, if you're selling something, you want them to buy from you, yeah. right? Uh, you know, if you're in a community and being under assault from other groups that don't want you there, you want your community to understand who you are and that you're really of and of and of them. So there's all this public education that happens too. Yeah. Um. But the other thing is that I found for the Black co-ops and You know, this may be true for other co-ops. I'm not claiming that it's not. I just focused on understanding black Mm -hmm. co-ops, African-American co-ops. But one of the things that also struck me after I kind of put it all together was every time I found something, I found information about a co-op, most of the time I also found information about how they educated themselves, especially before even opening the doors of the business.
0: Mm.
1: And that was really interesting, especially the urban co-ops, so pretty much all the co-ops started with people coming together saying, how can we fix this, right? That's why I kept saying my definition is that co-ops are an economic structure to solve problems in a collective way, right, with Mm -hmm. multiple people, right? Because most of the time people came, uh, 1930, Gary, Indiana, height of the Great Depression, the last bank has left the neighborhood, there's no jobs. No uh, no stores, businesses in the neighborhood. Um, some of the teachers at the local black high school come together with the principal to talk about what are we supposed to do? How can we help our community? One of them had already heard about co-ops and mentions it, and they suddenly start learning, reading everything they can about co-ops. A couple of them actually go and visit other existing co-ops that, that uh, one of the teachers had known about. They create a co-op course in the night school at the high school. And I don't know if people know what night school is anymore, but night school was a school for older people who never finished high school, a way to take classes at night. So, you know, you worked during the day and you went to school at night. Of course, during the Great Depression, there wasn't that much work. But anyway, the concept was you worked during the day and then you went to night school to get your diploma if you hadn't have it yet. Um, and so they created a co-op economics course.
0: Yeah, um, I, yeah I read about it. And it
1: became the largest subscribed night school class that they even offered at that high
0: school. Wow, yeah. Um,
1: and so you can see you know, how interested people got once they realized there might be this alternative strategy to really do something.
0: It was interesting. So they,
1: about 18 months before they even opened their first door, they were doing these weekly study groups and having people take the courses and they started a women's guild and a young people's guild. So they had um, all kinds of different ways for people to relate to each other to help develop what would be this co-op society that they created. Then they opened a grocery store. Then the next year they opened a credit union. The year after that they opened a gas station, wow, second wow. store. Yeah. They had one. They were had one of the largest. Um, what was it? Largest revenue streams per year of any black grocery store in the country for hmm. its time in 1936 um so you know so that you know again it started from a need and it started from this educate right people coming together talking and then educating each other and then creating a formal education structure so they knew what they were doing but it was was, planning right
0: yeah it was real serious because i think i even read in there that they were seriously thinking about or i think there were cooperative learning and curricula uh, was right. being advocated at the collegiate level too. Like right. taught in HBCUs, uh, historically black colleges and universities as well, right?
1: Yeah. And in the forties there were there was actually a study that found I think ten to fifteen HBCUs were teaching something about cooperatives either by themselves or with a consumer education program. Mm-hmm. Um, And that also meant that they were able to find some spillovers. A lot of those schools not only had the co-op course but actually had co-ops that had been uh, sponsored by the university or the college or sponsored by the graduates of one of those courses, that kind of thing. So there was also this um, connection between places that had strong education programs with places that had more co-op activity.
0: We'll be right back.
1: I don't know, because I kind of feel like if you prioritise the movement over money, then it'll be more effective, just more in the immediate sense anyway. I just wanna try, I just wanna try, I just wanna try, I just
2: wanna try. Now I can take you back where Malcolm and King was still beefing. Oh, back when the blood from the whip was still leaking, the pastor with the white hoodie on was still preaching. Now they got Instagram, they still tweeting. Huey P., Fred Hammond, they all fought. Stoke, he got Michael moved from Trinity to New York. Marcus Garvey bought boats and started trading. Highly Celeste fended off all the invasions. Man, they probably thought we were fools. And Mandela had to go to jail before he could rule. Uriah Butler had the workforce expressing their views. we living in pain, what more can you lose? They got saying, aliens building pyramids, baby. They got you questioning your greatness lately.
0: If you're enjoying books, beats, and beyond, do us a big favor. Go into any of our episodes, into the show notes, and you will see a big iTunes icon. Click on that icon, and it takes you to a place where you can subscribe, rate, and leave a review. and if you did this already, thank you so much. I think what was interesting in the book was a, 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 a lot of the predominantly uh, a lot of males were um, more in the um, high positions of the cooperatives. but as time went on, more females got involved and it really started to blossom and take off. Can you talk about the importance of women in the cooperative movement?
1: yeah, so I also focus a lot on the role of women, and the only thing I would disagree about your characterization of it mm-hmm. it wasn't really over time that women's roles mm. got stronger. Mm-hmm. It was from the beginning, um but maybe I mean maybe over time more women took leadership, public oh, leadership. yeah, but from the beginning, women were involved in all the organizing education, et cetera. Right. Yeah. Um, and that really, um, I was able to trace that back to the way that women were also very much involved in the mutual aid societies. And so I think they had already gotten used to having, um, even leadership in the mutual aid societies. There were some mutual aid societies that were all women, Hmm. women members, women run, et cetera. Um, one of the women that's prominent in the book is um helena wilson who nobody knows who she is but she was actually the head of the ladies auxiliary Mm. to the brotherhood of sleeping car porters for 35 years but her before she joined or before the sleep the brotherhood became a union she actually had been a member and a leader in a local mutual aid society so she's a direct you can see the direct link for her she started out in mutual aid societies and then um As she became the leader in the Ladies' Auxiliary, she worked with A. Philip Randolph, who, of course, is the president and founder of the um, Brotherhood. They worked together to do a whole co-op education program for all their members. She mostly worked with the women, but she also did training programs for any members. Um, She wrote articles about co-ops. She and A. Philip actually had a whole... um, uh, what do you call it, a set of, I think they call it instructions and, instructions and something, uh, suggestions and instructions for members. Uh, and half of the instructions were about reading, subscribing to co-op magazines, reading about co-op economics, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. She started study groups among the ladies auxiliary in about ten branches of the Brotherhood all over the United States and Canada. Um, she wrote in the Brotherhood's magazine, The um, Black Worker. She wrote articles about co-ops. She read and studied about them in Europe and this and that and wrote articles about them for the members. Um, so that's an example of sort of, you know, coming out from the leadership of uh, uh, the Mutual Aid Society to then, promoting co-op education and co-op development. She helped to start some co-ops in Chicago and Oakland and some other areas that the the Brotherhood was. Um, Early black leadership, uh, I mean, sorry, black women leadership, even, say, in the 1880s, because the um, Knights of Labor, which was an uh, an integrated co-op, and then the, um, well, the Knights of Labor actually believed in women's leadership and had one of the earliest labor leaders among them. The Colored Farmers Alliance, which came out of the Knights of Labor, but was only the black group, didn't have as much women's leadership. But then by the early 20th century, you did have, again, strong women's leadership in a lot of the smaller co-ops. And then you had people like Ella Jo Baker, who's the executive director of the Young Negroes Cooperative League in the 1930s. You have um, Nanny Helen Burroughs from Washington, D.C., who was actually a church leader and um, leading in women's education in Washington, D.C. She also is a, fa- a co-founder and runs a cooperative in Washington, D.C. in the 1930s. You get a Fannie Lou Hamer by the 1970s who, after fighting in SNCC for um, voting rights, realizes that she argues that we need to stop and regroup and first own our own land, mm-hmm. um, have our own co-op farms, co-op housing, et cetera, because she said you can't fight for civil political rights if you don't have economic justice first because they use the economics to retaliate you. Yeah. against you for your politics. Mm-hmm. So she found like she herself had been a sharecropper. She and her husband were thrown off the land they sharecropped because she... Um, registered to vote and was training people how to register to vote so she was like we need to first own our own land we need to be able to feed ourselves so they can't retaliate against us then we can operate politically from a position of strength and independence so she came at sort of the opposite way she started out trying to do the voting rights the civil rights and then she came she regrouped and said no we need to start with cooperative ownership yeah um yeah.
0: Yeah. No. I. I just think that's incredible. Just how all this has been around for so long, but and with so many historians out there, you would think there'd be more seeing this connection and talking about it throughout just the retelling of our activism th- since our time we came over to this nation. But <laughs> but you you just really right. don't.
1: Well. Yeah. I mean, it really was. It was very dangerous to talk about it. Yeah. Um. And so it was very hard, I think, for us to. I mean, we kept it going because, as I said, I don't think there's any time in our history where we didn't have some co-ops. We obviously we went through the periods when we had a lot more than normal. Yeah. There was no time we didn't have it, but there were certainly lots of times when we didn't talk about
0: it. Yeah, you're right. right? Like, like the Underground Railroad, you said is considered like Mm -hmm. a co-op, and right, that That was secret. Considered that a
1: co-op, right? That was the whole secret, right? Um. But it was, if you think about it, it was actually, that was another interracial one, too, oh, right. because you had blacks and That's whites right. who were using their resources, whether it was safe houses, wagons, sharing food, sharing uh, uh, geography, you know, the maps and the way to go, whatever. That And it was all underground. Of course, that was definitely, if you were found out, either the fugitives or the people harboring them would be you know, whipped, beaten, fined, killed, et cetera. So that was definitely dangerous for people to find out about it. But they managed to keep this whole secret yeah. um, organization going through this unofficial economic collaboration. I mean, it was also a social collaboration, but it had that economic collaboration element. That's what Du Bois talks about. So I also used that as another example of some of the early um early examples um and then you know we uh by the 1880s and the 1900s we were doing what would i would call official of bochdale ops which is the one once we had the laws in the united states of how to form a co-op then blacks were actually forming legal mm-hmm. uh, business co-ops the same way that whites were doing it so food co-ops farm co-ops where you share um supplies and um, marketing and distribution. Um, sometimes farms were actually farmed collectively, but sometimes it was just a set what we call a secondary-level co-op where you have individual farmers who own the co-op, and the co-op actually bought all the tractors, all the feed, and did all the distribution hmm. so that no one farmer had to handle all that by themselves or pay for that by themselves. Mm-hmm. So you had a variety of different kinds of official... Um, legally recognized co-ops
0: Part of the book you talked about just different reasons why the cooperative was used and different kind of groups, the women and their importance in the cooperative movement but you also talked about the youth and how they embraced the cooperative movement. Can you talk about that?
1: Yes, it turned out it was another one of those fascinating finds. Um, It's how the cooperative movement really took root and sometimes was Moved along because young people were involved, or because of the way they involved young people. So some of the co-ops had these youth guilds, which actually had their own sort of sub co-op. Like the Gary, Indiana group, they actually had an ice cream and candy section of the grocery <laughs> store, which was run by the youth. Wow. The um, oh, in West Virginia, there was uh, in the 20s. There was actually uh, it was it's a black uh, high school. And they had um, a youth store, basically it was a supply store, so the youth had a store, a co-op supply store where you could get pencils, paper, etc., at uh-huh. a really cheap price um, for all the young people. Uh, and then, of course, I did mention the Young Negroes Cooperative League, but we didn't talk about it very much. Oh, that's an important It started one, yeah. in 1930. Um, it was only about four or five years that it lasted, but it was really important because its whole point was that young black people were the ones who had to have the courage to say capitalism isn't working for us, we need our own cooperatives. They had a vision for a whole what I call co-op commonwealth. Their notion was that you get five or six people together in one town or neighborhood, they start a food co-op, and they start a credit union, and um, Then they start some co-op factories, then they regionalize, they connect with the other people in their neighboring area that are doing this too and create a larger credit union, a regional warehouse for the stores, and then those regional warehouses actually create enough demand to have regional co-op factories to supply the stores with, and so they had this whole vision. But it started, again, with education. That's mostly what they accomplished in those first four years. Mm. Um, Ella Jo Baker was the uh, executive director. They had, in the first year of its existence, they actually had a conference in Pittsburgh. Now, this is really incredible. So black youth, they also talked about the role of black women. But they, and this is 1931 in Pittsburgh, 600 people attended their conference. Wow. In the middle of the Depression. Yeah. 600 people came wow. um, and elected Ella Baker to the executive director position and a guy named George Schuyler, who was a Pittsburgh Courier uh, columnist as the president of the organization. Um, and they had this wonderful idea that by get young people excited about co-ops, get them to start all these interlocking co-ops, Ella Baker also had this penny-a-day fundraising plan She um, said that if you started uh, on January 1st, which in those days was celebrated as Emancipation Day, and collected one cent a day for every black activity that happened between Emancipation Day and um, Black History Month, that you could pool that money. Every black organization would collect a penny from each person that participated in any event from that time period, and then pool that money for co-op development. (laughs) <laughs> um, it didn't work, but that, you know, that was her idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got, I studied black co-ops in schools. There's some schools like L.A. in the 90s started um, a school garden, and the students were learning not just horticulture and gardening, but then they learned how to sell the produce at farmer's markets, hmm. and then they learned about um, added uh, adding to, you know, adding production. So they made salad dressing. Oh, wow. and they created a co-op around selling their salad dressing. They sold their salad dressing through Amazon as well as at the at the farmers markets. Mm-hmm. This is Amazon is just beginning to be an online mm-hmm. platform, right? Mm-hmm. And over 10 years, they were able to send 77 of their graduates. Wow to college because they voted to save half of the proceeds for college scholarships. Wow. And that gave scholarships over the 10 years. 77 of their members who graduated from high school had enough money to go on to college because of the money in the co-op that they wow. had in the co-op.
0: that's amazing. And the
1: high school then started a, a college prep program because they now actually had students who were going off to college oh, yeah, yeah. because of the co-op. So wow. that's why I get so excited about these co-op solutions because they think about all the pieces, right? They kept students in high school. They yeah. got them earning money. They got them earning running a business, yeah. understanding how to grow crops, right. and then, you know, a platform for them to go on to college when they normally wouldn't have ever been able to afford it.
0: It's almost like when you try to teach a child, you try to teach them through fun, and you try to teach them do, you know, working with, well, that's at least what I do. Through fun and and just right. participating with others, and through that process, it, you, you, it's so fun that you forget that you're also growing like, like a business working, and, right. and you're working, and yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. And that and, and I just want to go a little bit back. You were talking about um the uh, Young Negroes Cooperative League yeah. uh, didn't didn't um that have a big influence on uh the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee with SNCC, and. <laughs>
1: Yes, because remember, Ella Baker is the advisor. She helped SNCC organize in mm-hmm. what, 1959, 1960. Mm-hmm. So I do, I argue that Ella Baker, who actually is well known for being a, a grassroots community organizer and believing in grassroots democratic leadership. I argue that she cut her teeth. She really learned all that democratic participation Uh, because of the co-op movement in the 30s. Mm -hmm. She was um, just out of college in the 30s when she became director of uh, Young Negroes Cooperative League. And um, so her early activity was all around economic justice, economic participation, grassroots, economic participation, democracy. And so by the time... Her job after that is in the WPA, that's a New Deal program of, um, I think she did education, the WPA, that's uh, uh, teaching people about their oral history and that kind of stuff. And then she moved into, uh, she was a field worker for the NAACP, and so she honed more of her um, organizing skills. And so by the time she is advising SNCC, She knows all about this stuff, right? She's been living and breathing this cooperative, collective, grassroots leadership stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, so I do argue that the Young Negroes Cooperative League was really important to those 60s strategies, especially uh, the ones um, by SNCC and run by young people. But there's also that continuity of people. And as I said, remember, other black leaders also kind of cut their teeth in co-ops and then moved on to other things, even though Fannie Lou Hamer did the opposite way. Mm, (laughs) But she was also in SNCC, so she had the training (laughs) from SNCC, even though she came to the specific co-op development after she did the SNCC stuff. Mm. So, yeah, that's all these continuities just – I sometimes challenge my audiences just name me one civil rights leader or black (laughs) leader and I could tell you something they had to do with the co-op movement
0: (laughs) we'll be right back here
2: we go y'all here we go here we go y'all go can I kick it can I kick it can I kick it Go. Go. go they say we living in a Generation that's full of gentrification. Agenda-based agendas are genuine indication. think back and forth about who controls the premises, but it's all stolen land from the native people, indigenous. The remnants of irreverent is irrelevant. They justify the why through cinematic embellishments. Then we let leaders, mislead us. The buffer turn working-class whites against all people of color. We suffer the same affliction through economic restriction. Focus on skin tone where they pockets have since grown. It's known the black and white concept is just a myth until they get profit from it. Race didn't exist. From the current face of a felon, to the state that we fell in, to the fabrication of bait at the Bacon's Rebellion, it was telling, they won't stop to the spectrum and stretch. Do we see ourselves as one we can never progress? Can I kick it? Can I kick it? Can I kick
0: it? Is there any good examples of African American cooperatives today?
1: Yes. Yeah. So there's some that are not just African American, but also like Latino and African American uh-huh. together. Mm-hmm. So there's one, one of my favorites is the largest worker cooperative in the United States, which is in the South Bronx, called Cooperative Home Care Associates. That's, um, I guess, predominantly Latina, but also Black, and originally it was sort of Black and Latina home care workers uh, in their own, running their own, owning their own uh, worker co-op to provide home care to people. We've got um, some sewing, quilting, and sewing cooperatives. In the South, where uh, women are owning their own – sorry, where the co-op owns the sewing machines, and women are sewing together um, and then selling – you know, the co-op sells stuff. We've got housing co-ops that are predominantly black. We've got credit unions that are predominantly black. And a credit union is a cooperative financial institution. It's basically owned by all its depositors Mm -hmm. who then vote on the board of directors who then hires – the cashiers and that kind of thing, but the point of the credit union is to provide affordable, accessible financial services, so loans at lower interest rates, uh, savings accounts at higher interest rates, financial literacy education, that kind of thing. Um, we have, uh, there's a group called New Era Windows in Chicago, which is predominantly black and Latino men. Um, they actually did a similar factory takeover to what we hear about in Argentina. Mm -hmm. uh, I forget what New Era Windows was called originally, but um, the owners were about to shut it down and maybe move out of the country or something, and the workers actually um, went on strike and took over the building um, and eventually were able to um, buy the company. Wow. from the owners and own it themselves and run it. That's New Era Windows in Chicago. Um, there's some uh, black-owned grocery stores around the country, grocery co-ops around the country. There was a nursing co-op in North Carolina. I'm not sure if it still exists. Um, I know I'm missing some, but you get the idea.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah, they're, they're def- so...
1: And actually growing again. This is another period where co-ops, especially worker co-ops and food co-ops, are growing.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I was about to ask because I think with, you know, with gentrification and black communities, yeah. high high unemployment, just the super exploitation of workers and and the yeah. wealth gap, it just seems like it's primed. Like, wh- wh- how, yeah. what can this you is say? An important, yeah. Another
1: important era where the economics is screaming for an alternative, right? Right. We've got to find other ways because the the current economy is failing most of us. So a lot of people are opting to do these alternatives, pool together resources with other people and do stuff. Um, We've got some great examples of um, very small worker co-ops being created. Again, in the South Bronx, there's a group called Green Worker Cooperatives that helps um, black and Latino, mostly black and Latinos, in the South Bronx to create their own businesses. And they're creating things like catering companies, mm. vegan caterers. Um, there's a couple of coding and Internet co-ops. Uh, there's a new one called, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's a, a, a travel agency, a black-owned travel agency. Co-op, agency co-ops, trying to help people go to, like, untrampled places, you know, Hmm.
2: untraveled
1: places. Um, There's – what else? So there's all kinds of – right. So we're also starting to get these pockets of places where there's co-op developers who are helping groups um, to create mostly worker co-ops. And they're actually being helped by cities now. So Madison, Wisconsin, New York City – Richmond, California, uh, Rochester, New York. A couple. I think there's about ten or twelve cities that are actually putting money into creating, helping to create worker co-ops, worker co-op education, worker co-op development organizations, oh, wow. because they realize that um, unemployment and low-wage work is not going away with the regular system. Right. But if that they can help do uh, co-op education and then help co-op development agencies put more money into them so they can create help create more worker co-ops, that that will actually help to address some of the poverty, low-wage work, and unemployment. So really? we're getting um, – it's really the word is getting out that this can be a really important strategy.
0: Yeah, because I was going to ask, if someone wanted to start a co-op, say, tomorrow, where can they learn to go start one in a sense? Is that even
1: uh... – So there's actually a lot of good um, online resources and um, – there's some good co-op development organizations. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm trying to think what's the best place to send you. Well, if you're interested in worker co-ops, there is a U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops, and mm-hmm. that's usworker.coop, and they have uh, a lot of links to other groups that also have co-op education. Um, even the USDA, especially if you're interested in rural agricultural co-ops, mm-hmm. the U.S. Department of Agriculture has a website website on co-ops but i can't think of what the co-op what the website is but they actually put out a magazine called rural cooperatives then they have pamphlets on how to start a cooperative and that kind of thing so you can get it through there Um, i have an organization i work with i'm a volunteer with called grassroots economic organizing and we try to keep track of all the sort of worker co-op workplace democracy activity and uh, articles. So if you go to geo.coop, GEO for Grassroots Economic Organizing, geo.coop, you can find a lot of articles there. Um, Tessa Tools, oh, I can't remember what Tessa stands for, and I think they are Tessa.coop, T-E-S-A.coop. They actually have an online co-op 101 sort of training.
0: Wow. You know, um, what was interesting yeah. to me is. You know, I went to business school, undergrad. And oh,
1: you don't learn that and in And MBA.
0: Yeah, it's like you learn all these other kind of business models, but cooperative, it's like, hush. <laughs> it's just so interesting. Yeah,
1: well, it's sort of the black sheep of the family. Like, yeah. I mean, I didn't learn about co-op. You know, I have a Ph.D. in economics. Right. I didn't learn. I had yeah. to teach myself about co-ops. I didn't learn about it. Now, my, my alma mater, University of Massachusetts at Amherst, actually now, has a certificate in cooperative economics. Hmm. Um, But when I was there, they didn't teach us anything about co-ops. I I learned all that stuff later in life on my own. But at least they do have a certificate now. There's a few more places that are teaching it, and there's a few – Uh, business schools now that are starting to teach cooperatives so even business school students you need to start asking around or if you're trying to think about where to go to business school you should start reading the curricula Mm -hmm. of some of the business schools some of the smaller sort of progressive business schools are starting to teach this stuff yes
0: that's Um, awesome yeah
1: so there's some interesting um, movements in that direction
0: Do, do writing this book has has it changed you in any way
1: um, well, the first thing is, um, it's not the first book I ever wrote, but it's the first book I ever wrote that's gotten so much attention and interest. Mm. So I actually do a lot of public speaking about the book. So I don't know if it's changed me because I still hate public speaking, but, <laughs> but I do, you know, I do, uh, I don't know. Sometimes I do five to six, presentations, interviews in a month. I've slowed down now, Mm -hmm. but for the last two years, I I would have a huge pace of people wanting to talk to me, wanting to get ideas. Um, So that's um, one change is I just, I become much more of a public speaker than I used to be, or actually I didn't ever think I would be, but now I am. (laughs) Um, The other change, I guess, is this, um, I have become much more, uh, hmm, what would be the word? Um, I really do see co-ops as a solution. So I, I think some people, like if you follow me around all the time, you might get tired because every time <laughs> I'm anywhere and people say something about a problem, I'm like, co-op, <laughs> right? It should yeah. be a co-op. Make it a co-op. All Teach right. them about co-ops, right? <laughs> every Everywhere I go, you know, everything I see, everywhere I go I see the solution being co-ops of mm-hmm. some kind or something similar to a co-op or whatever so maybe that's a change I wasn't I mean I I always I think lean toward those kind of ideas but now I'm like so certain yeah that co-op is is the idea and then I guess the last thing is um I was always big on education too but now also that's the other thing I just say all the time is um education is so important meaning educating people about how to be change makers and about um, economic participation, particularly through co-ops. Mm-hmm. So I'm even now. Sometimes you'll hear me. If you've seen some of my um, talks on video, I actually rail against kindergarten, the way we teach children in kindergarten. Because in kindergartens now, we really are teaching them how to be little worker bees.
0: Right? <laughs> yeah. How
1: to follow the rules, sit in your seat, don't touch anybody, mm-hmm. um, regurgitate what the teacher says. Right. That's sort of how you pass kindergarten. But if we really want to create co-op members, we need to be teaching them how to collaborate, talk to other people, problem solve, resolve conflict, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you work with other people? How do you make decisions with other people? They should be, you know, much more focused on group decision making and learning from each other and stuff and not so much about sitting quietly in their seat raising their hand to answer what the teacher just said back to them you know that kind of
0: thing yeah because on the playground they do cooperative economics
1: (laughs) yeah they do but then they get shut down yeah when they get to classroom right and Mm -hmm. then by first grade oh my god you're considered cheating if you talk to somebody else or (laughs) or consult with somebody else about an answer but yet almost all the jobs even in the business world you're supposed to know mm-hmm. how to do teamwork and consult with other people yeah. but when school we're still in that old model mm-hmm. yeah. right right so yeah we kind of beat it out of them and then we wonder why when they're adults they don't know how to work together or make decisions <laughs> together
0: all Right. yeah i meant when i read this book it was like a total surprise everything to me so i'm just thinking with you through all the research did anything just strike you surprise you the most anything hit you like wow
1: well, you know, some of the stuff we already talked about. I mean, the very first surprise to me it was how much there was. Yeah. I really thought I just needed a year or two. I would find some examples to show that it wasn't totally alien to mm-hmm. us to mm-hmm. do co-op development. And then, actually, I was going to write, the book I was going to write was going to be on co-op development among all people of color in the United States. Mm. So I was going to have a chapter on blacks, a chapter on Latinos, a chapter on First Nation people, maybe a chapter on Asians, and then try to pull it all together and show that subaltern people, you know, use this strategy. And I still, you know, I still may do something on that, though. I'm trying to get other people to write that now. Mm -hmm. Um, But I couldn't get out of the black history because there was so So much. much, I mean, even now I, I left stuff out of the book and I'm learning almost every day I learn new stuff. I could already rewrite, you know, the book or write a second volume or something because there's so much information out there. Yeah. So I was a little bit shocked. I mean, I wasn't shocked that there was a history. I was shocked. How much and how consistent a history there was just the other revelation i think um, well i guess the two others the role of organizations right i don't think i realized how important having black organizations that promoted co-ops and the fact that almost every major black organization you could name so the colored farmers united the color national colored farmers united oh god i forgot the name of it (laughs) uh union in the 1880s was actually the largest black organization of its time,
0: mm.
1: right? By the time you get to the Garvey movement, co-ops yeah, aren't the Garvey. main thing, but yeah. they're still doing, but the Garvey movement is still talking about democratic cooperative economic strategies. And that's right? like globally
0: the, too with him. I mean, that wasn't just, right. yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And it's not, I mean, they're not a co-op organization, but they do have the elements, mm.
0: right, mm-hmm. of it.
1: That's the largest organization of its time. Then you get to, you know, the labor union, you know, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, you get to, all right? So so just era after era, every black organization, even if it's not their major um, platform, it's in there, how important co-ops are. Even now we've got it. The Movement for Black Lives came out with their platform, and half of their platform is about economic justice mm-hmm. and co-op right. development and right. co-ops. Yeah. So that was the other surprise to me, I think, that, it really was like this parallel movement to what we think of as the long civil rights movement, but that so many of these black, major black organizations of their times had either an element or a purpose was co-op development was also really surprising.
0: Yeah. I mean, when as I read it, I would just maybe think about just just how capitalism in itself and just how avaricious it is and just looking at all the exploitation around the globe like this right here. This can change everything if people really understood it. Yes. <laughs> it really could.
1: Right. Well, that's also what makes it so dangerous.
0: Yes, right? exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. I, I you probably you you probably already said this, but I just just want to uh, make sure I, I am covering it. Do well, all of this. What do you mainly want the reader to take away?
1: I want the reader to understand that African Americans have a continuous history of solving economic problems through economic cooperation, particularly what we know of as the co-op business structure, and that it wasn't easy, right? It takes a lot of commitment, time, energy, education, um, but that regardless of what the economic problem has been, um, cooperative has been a very viable, vibrant solution and that we all should learn more about it and understand how it can continues to be a viable solution that people should take into account or at least keep in their toolbox.
0: Well, I want to say thank you so much for doing this, writing this book for us and constantly spreading the word about it. We'll try to do the same over here Um So thank you so much for
1: coming on to the show. Thank you for reading it, for being interested, for wanting me to talk about it. I really appreciate that, and good luck with everything.
0: Thank you. You too. If you want to purchase the book or any of the music, I've included links in the show notes. Or you could just go to booksbeatsandbeyond.com. And, you know, what's cool is by clicking on the links, you support the guests, the music artists, And uh, we get a small commission, which is no extra cost to you, which we will then put toward the operations of this show. Um, And also, please click on the iTunes link to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And if you do this stuff already, I just want to say thank you so much for your support. Remember, let's read, listen, explore.